If you will turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, we'll start there. You know, my sermon last week was a little bit different. It's one of those sermons that sometimes is kind of hard to take. It's like when we preached on predestination and election. The idea that God has got that side of him is something that some of us rather not think about. As a child in Sunday school, I was taught that Jesus came and did away with the Old Testament. I hope to show you today the purpose for the Old Testament and to show you the scripture that Jesus said it's not not done away at all and how it's still very much alive. The sermon last week created a conversation after the sermon and then went on through the week. People were, were really asking some questions about it. And so we'll continue last week's sermon, I guess, this morning. And I'd like to make some points as we go and show you the place that the Old Testament fits because it's still very much alive and still working, still doing just exactly what God intended it for it to do to start with. So in Romans chapter 7, In verse 7, Paul says to the letter at Rome, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. Paul is given a personal testimony to the fact that the law taught him some things about sin that he had no clue about. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So one of the things that he learned about another sin that he was involved with came from his knowledge of the law. Verse 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual. A lot of folks today do not believe that. But I am carnal, sold under sin. I have chosen, Paul said, to be a sinner. Hard to take, but that's who I am, he said. The law put down by God was referred to in the scriptures as the law and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. The first books of the law, the Torah, the Jewish called it, and the prophets, all those books after that, Daniel and Hosea and Habakkuk and Nehemiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all those. It was God's moral law defined as the expression of the character and will of God. It set forth the only standard of righteousness that is acceptable to God. God in the law explained to us what is acceptable to him. He put the law out there to show us what sin was. He put the penalties out there because he says in Romans that we who sin deserve death. That's with all of us. But man lacked the power to follow the law and be approved of by God. That's the reason for the plan of salvation. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul is saying that the law is a spiritual thing because of one reason. It brings people to Christ. And that was the purpose of the law, to do away with sin 
to make people aware that they are sinners because you've got to convince a person he is a sinner before he even feels the need to seek Christ. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Now the schoolmaster in that day in Rome, which is where the letter were from in Galatia, and in the civilized parts of the world, the schoolmaster was a term that uh, the person who carried, the slave who carried the master's kids to school every morning and went and got them and brought them back home. That was the guy that was called the schoolmaster. He didn't actually teach the kids. He carried them to the teacher. And that was the expression that they used that the Old Testament law was. It carried people to the teacher to be taught. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13 shows us that the goal of the Christian is conforming to the moral image of God as shown to man by Jesus Christ. So we are, are obligated to try to change ourselves to where we look like Christ, who was the image of God. So if we want to be like God wants us to be, we got to be like Christ. Because he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So let's look then at what Jesus taught about the Old Testament. And we can do that by turning to Matthew chapter 5. Now the people who taught me about the position, the modern day position of the Old Testament had never read this scripture word for word. They were making some assumptions. They were shortening the, the principle to where it didn't even say anymore what it was intended in Scripture to say. So I'd like for you to look at this Scripture that Jesus has taken apart word by word. In chapter 5 and verse 17 of Matthew, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. I looked up that word destroy to make sure I understood what he was saying. And that word destroy is to take apart or dissolve the law. In other words, just tear it all apart, dismantle it. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now I was taught that that meant that when Jesus came, God's plan was fulfilled. But that's not what it says. The word fulfill was to verify or to correctly interpret what the Old Testament was saying. In other words, Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the, the, the law. What I came to do was to explain to you what it actually said so you'd understand it. Verse 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now let's take that apart. Till heaven and earth pass, no jot or tittle will be changed by the law. As long as earth and heaven is here, the law will be what it is, and it doesn't change. And its purpose doesn't change. It says in Luke chapter 16 and verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one jot or tittle of the law to fail. Now let me explain to you about jot and tittle if you don't know. Jot and the tittle was the two smallest alphabet letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The jot is just a dot, and the tittle is a little line, like where you cross a, 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 a regular T, not a capital T, but a little T. 
And it said, Jesus says, not one single mark of the written law will be changed as long as heaven and earth is here. So his coming didn't fulfill the law. It was only part of it. Till all be fulfilled. Now what does that mean? What is all? I think all here is the plan of God. Till all that God had plans for is accomplished. That word is in the New International Version is translated accomplished. Till all is accomplished. So what does that mean? That God's plan has ended. That it's over. That everything has been done that's supposed to be done. So then, now verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or the one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be accomplished. Now when do you think all is accomplished? When the church is full and transported to heaven. That is the end of the plan of God. It's when everybody walking this earth that's going to be saved has been saved and we've all heard, even though it's not, to my knowledge, it's not in Scripture, but we've all heard that when the last sinner comes to Jesus, then the church will be transported to heaven. That is when all is fulfilled. Now, Jesus' coming is not the fulfillment of the law. It's part of it. It's the introduction of the church, which is the second part of God's plan. Till heaven and earth pass, the law will still be here. It will still be valid. It will still be doing what God intended for it to do. And that is to show people that they're sinners, that they need a Savior, and that they will come to Christ. In verse 19, it says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, Jesus calls them least commandments, because he's referring to, to going against the law. Now we've got the Ten Commandments. They were the first things that came down. And then we've got Moses' law. God gave Moses 500 regulations that are in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Some of them are in Exodus that we could operate clearly under the Ten Commandments. He's taking those Ten Commandments and giving every kind of a possibility that something would happen. Is when he told us, you borrow a man's ox and the ox dies while you got it borrowed, you got to go give him a brand new ox. If you borrow other things for him, you got to repay him three times or you got to repay him seven times. If you knew that you got your neighbor's lawnmower and it broke down while you had it, you was going to have to buy him seven lawnmowers, you'd be a guy that didn't go borrow stuff very much. That was the law. That was the thing that God said, this is the way we make it work. And like I said last week, there were 11 things that God says a man's got to die for. So whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so. See, that was a problem with what they taught me. They were teaching me that those commandments are no longer valid. He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've explained the kingdom of heaven already, okay? The kingdom of heaven is that place here, that position that we can take after we're born again and part of the church, we can decide as part of the church to let God rule our lives in everything. That is the kingdom of heaven. And he says 
that if a person teaches somebody wrongly, that he will be the least as a born-again member of the church in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's dealing with the issue now on a personal basis for each one of us. Jesus introduced a future plan, which he explains here. He didn't go to a great detail here, but you got to know some other things in order to know what he said. Jesus introduced a future plan, the church, which would happen 50 days after his resurrection. At the time that Jesus preached this right here, there was no such thing as a church. Now we've got churches today that try to give their definitions as going back 1,500 years before Christ. But until Peter preached and the church was formed at Pentecost 50 days after Christ was resurrected, there was no such thing as a church, no matter what people called it. You had temples and you had the Jewish faith and you had idols and idol temples, but there was no such thing as a church. He's talking about the church here, Jesus is, but it's to the future. It's 50 days in the future. Those in the church could be could choose to be part of the kingdom of heaven where they place their total lives under the rule of God. Jesus said that law is still valid. The scribes and the Pharisees, it says in verse 20, For I say unto you that except ye your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, for the average person walking the street, the people who are probably standing there listening to Jesus preach this right here, their example, how to be a godly person was scribes and Pharisees. They were the church. They were the people who walked around with all that arrogance saying, if you're not like me, you're not going to be with God. And what he's saying is that it exceed, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall no way enter into that special place in the church called the kingdom of heaven. And the law that they followed was all the regulations. They took it and put it in a wrong place. Where they were supposed to have been drawn to God, they were drawn to the regulations. And they stayed on everybody about not doing the regulations. Even when they started the church and people started being converted to Christ, the Pharisees and the scribes tried to make them look like they belonged to the Jewish faith with circumcision and all following all the regulations. But that wasn't it. Now let me show you something. Jesus is explaining this thing and he's telling us what the law really meant. Not that it said that, but that's what it meant. And in verse 21, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. In Jesus' day, they're looking back to Moses' law, the old time. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, he said. What he meant was, Thou shalt not murder. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment, shall be in danger of hell. Whoever kills somebody is going to be in danger of going to hell. But I say unto you, verse 22, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment of hell. And whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thy fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Now I don't know what possessed my mother to have some of her beliefs. I do not. I th my mother was raised in the church and everybody thought she was saved, but I don't think she was saved until she was an older lady. She was a church person. And she knew everything from the church from top to bottom. 
but I don't think she had Jesus. I, might be, I may be mistaken, but I don't believe she did. She went to visit an older lady in her late 80s that was her Sunday school teacher when she was six years old. And she came back and was sitting at the table crying when I went in her house. I said, what's the matter, Mama? She said, I went to see this lady that was my Sunday school teacher as a six-year-old, and we all thought so well of her. And she said, I've just become aware today she's facing death, and she's not born again. And at that point, I think she had realized exactly what it was all about. It's not about church. It's about Jesus. But at any rate, it says, Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka. That Raka is calling somebody stupid. What it was saying is that they had an empty head. Now let me clear something else up for you. If you've heard the story, and I've heard it a dozen times, was it Isaiah that the youngins threw rocks at him and, and called him a bald-headed fool or something? And God had the bears come out of the woods and chase the youngins out of town? You remember that story? They weren't calling him bald-headed. The thing they were calling him was empty-headed. That's the reason God punished them. They weren't teasing Isaiah because he didn't have any hair on his head. It was much worse than that. He was God's representative speaking for God on this earth, and they said that he was empty-headed or stupid. And that's the reason God sent the bears to run them off. So you're in danger of the council if you call somebody stupid because my mother would not allow you to use that term in her house. You could get spanked for it if you used it the second time. She'd point her finger at you the first time you said it. You didn't call anybody stupid. Not in her house. She wouldn't have it. And if you call somebody thy fool, you're in danger of hell. That's what God said. That's what Jesus said. Don't go around calling everybody a fool because you place yourself in a dangerous position when you do it. Now, let's turn to chapter 27 and look at it. Same book. Jesus is explaining these other things. Now, this is an issue that we did not deal with last week in the sins that I went across. We didn't bring this up. But here's verse 27, chapter 5, Matthew. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, this Jesus talking, introduces it by the same thing. Y'all heard from old times, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's messing around on your wife or your husband. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already, in his heart. Now see, Jesus explaining what the law meant. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He says if you look at a woman with lust, if you want somebody other than your wife, you have committed what he called a thought sin, and you deserve death. A thought sin. If you're angry with somebody, you have a thought sin. And to God, the way you think, you can sin in your thoughts without actually doing the sin. See, the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching people that you had to do something and be caught with it in order to sin. And Jesus is telling them, that's not the case. With my Father, God, he says with the law that if you think about doing something, that's a sin as far as my Father is concerned. So that's the reason God says if you have a bad thought in your mind, in I think the 55th chapter of Isaiah, if you have a bad thought in your mind, and you don't get it out, I won't hear your prayers, God says. 
So he's trying to get you to let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Don't even think bad thoughts. It'll get you in trouble. Now for this right here about adultery, I want to show you a, a, a present day at that time, the time the Bible was written. I want to show you a present day situation that Jesus himself handled and show you how closely he followed the law himself. Now he's already there. He's already, he's come, so he can't be the fulfillment of the law. But he followed the law like he, we're to use him as an example and follow the law just like he did. In John chapter 8, turn there if you will please. No, he said you can sin in your heart without actually doing the sin. And that changed what the Pharisees and the scribes were telling everybody. Most of you will probably remember the story of when the Pharisees and the scribes brought the woman that had been caught in adultery to Jesus to punish. In chapter 8 of John and verse 1, let's look at what it says. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? They were planning on catching Jesus because they didn't operate it that way to the extent that Jesus was telling up there a minute ago. They operated doing, and she had done, apparently. They said she had, that she was caught in the act. This they said, verse 6, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard him not. <laughs> now look at this. He's in the temple. They're probably beside the temple somewhere, maybe in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, I guess. And when they come to him and, and stand this woman up in front of him and says, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, Moses said that she's got to die, that she's stoned with stones until she die. What do you say? And Jesus squatted down and started writing in the dirt with his finger like he hadn't even heard what they said. Well, I'm sure that frustrated them. So when they continued asking him in verse 7, he lifted up himself, he stood up, and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now why did he say that? I'll show you in a minute, because it's the law. That's what he's supposed to say. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He stood up. He told them, you that have no sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he squatted back down and started writing in the ground, in the dirt again with his finger. And they which heard it, verse 9, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Jesus is down there looking at the ground, writing in the dirt. And when he looks up, there's nobody there but him and the woman. 
And when Jesus stood up, or lifted himself up, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Why did he say that? Because it's part of the law. He was following the law down to the word. Hath no man condemned thee? Verse 11, she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now see, I was taught in Sunday school that Jesus forgave her. Jesus didn't forgive her. There's nowhere it says he forgave her. Let me show you what it actually says, word by word. It says in, in, in John chapter 3 and verse 7, I was sent not to condemn the world, but that through the world through me might be saved. And he told her, said, I don't condemn you. And in other places it said Jesus didn't come to condemn. That wasn't part of his job. Or is that the reason he didn't do it? No, I don't think so. First John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, If we are faithful, or if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's what 1 John, 1 John 1 9 says. But you see, Did she ask for forgiveness? No. Did she confess her sin? No. Did she say, please forgive me, Lord? No. Did Jesus forgive her? Doesn't say so. What did he say? Go and sin no more. <laughs> so according to Jesus, she must have been guilty. Or why would he say, go and sin no more? She's already sinned. So he must have known that she was caught in sin. Doesn't say so. I have to assume that by looking at what the word is. Go and sin no more. Go and don't do it again. Is what he told this woman. She wasn't forgiven. She was told not to sin again. Now let me ask, let me say this and what we're talking about. Why was there any need for Jesus to condemn her? He didn't come to condemn. That's part of what he said. But you know why he didn't come? One reason he didn't come to condemn her is because the law had already condemned her. Why did they bring her to Jesus? Because she'd been caught in adultery. Oh, is that sin? How do you know that sin? It's because the law said it was sin. It's been saying it's sin since the Ten Commandments came down off the mountain with Moses. He didn't have to condemn her. The law condemned her. The law made her know that what she had done was sin. Of course, I'm sure she knew it was because the law was all around them every day. They all knew what the law said because it was for everyone. Now, I'd like for you, if you will, the law made them a sinner so they would know they needed salvation. Let me read you something else that's in Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you want to turn there. Here we're going back to the law. And Jesus knew the law, bottom from top to bottom and upside down and crossways. He could quote it all. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 5. Look at what part of the law says. Then shalt thou bring forth that man or that woman which hath committed that wicked thing under thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shall stone them with stones till they die. It's talking about people who had done something and been caught that the penalty was stoning with stones till they die. Verse 6, At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. You've got to have two or three witnesses to put anybody to death. The people did it. The government didn't do it. The people did it. But still, you had to have two or three witnesses before anybody could be killed for whatever they did. Shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. You cannot bring an accusation against another man in the nation of God's chosen people in Canaan. One person cannot come up to the, to the, to the elders of the city or to a crowd and say, this man has done this, I saw him do it, Moses' law said he's got to be put to death. we got to put him to death. It won't work. you got to have two or three witnesses. You see that? Now, I don't know how many was in that crowd of scribes and Pharisees that brought this woman to Jesus there in the temple. But there was a bunch of them because it says their consciences bothered them and they left one by one from the oldest one to the youngest one. That tells me that the old ones knew enough for what was going on. We'd be fixing to make fools of ourselves by bringing her to this, this man right here. And it took the younger people a little bit longer to figure out that they were being made fools of and they left last until all of them were gone. How many was that? I don't know. But it sounds like the way the scripture said that there must have been at least 10 or 12, 15 of them. So you see, when there is no accuser, there's no crime. I'm convinced this lady was caught in adultery. There was a crime. But the only way she can be put to death in that instance, and listen to the what else is, that the got to be at least two or three witnesses. Now look at verse 7. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first upon him to put him to death. The first stone has got to be thrown by the people who actually caught the person in the act of sinning. They're the ones that's got to throw the first stone. That's what he said a while ago, right? Ye who are without sin cast the first stone. I don't know whether the guys that caught her, saw her, do what she did, the witnesses, if you will, were in that crowd with the scribes and Pharisees, or if they just carried her to the scribes and Pharisees, and then they left, and then the scribes and Pharisees carried her to Jesus. I don't know. But I know this. When everybody who accused that woman of being caught in adultery walked off, there was no more crime. Legally speaking, in God's economy, the witness that's caught them doing it has got to be at least two, preferably three, and when it comes time to stone her with stones that she die, they have got to be the one to throw the first stones. Now something else you need to know about stoning if you haven't figured it out already. There was a place in every town that was a little high place, a cliff, if you will. They stoned most of the people around Jerusalem in the valley of Gehenna where they threw all the garbage to burn because when they, when they stoned them with stone, they just left them down there 
for the, 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 the wild dogs or wolves or coyotes or whatever to eat them up. And they were in the dump so they didn't create no bad scene. But let me say this. There was a pile of stones at the top of the bank. They weren't chunking rocks at these people, y'all. They were picking up stones as bigger, or bigger than footballs and dropping them off the cliff to land on these people's heads. And when they got through with the stoning, I'm sure they were somebody's job to go pick up those stones and carry them back up on the bank and stack them up there so they'd be ready for the next one. That's the way they killed them, with big stones, stones that would bust their head when it hit them, stones that would kill them. And they were big and they were heavy and they were dropped off of a bank on the people that they stoned. So now what I'm trying to say, at the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death and afterwards then all the rest of the people there that are, that are, that are at the gathering can pick up stones and throw it on them too. But the ones that witnessed them caught in the act and that brought them first to the authorities or to who the crowd or whoever's going to kill them had to throw the first stones. They had to be serious enough with their accusation to where they would be the one to drop the first stone on the victim's head. Even that man shall die, and thou shalt put evil away from Israel. This was the purpose of the law. That caught me because I wasn't aware in our courts today we don't have that. There's nobody, they can condemn people with no witnesses at all. God wouldn't put up with that. You've got to see it and you've got to bring them up and then when it's time to do something to them, you've got to be the one to cast the first stone. That's what it, reason he said what he did to those people. Who among you without sin let him cast the first stone? Have we no witnesses here that caught her, that saw her do it? You, you're supposed to cast the first stone. I mean, he's going exactly word by word by the law. Jesus was faced with this situation and followed the old law, as they called it. The fulfilling, I think, of the old law is still going on till heaven and earth pass away. The church is still growing. The law is still showing guilt. Unsaved people are still being made aware that they are sinners and need a Savior. Putting evil away from among us is still God's request for us and His desire that we shall live in a life without sin. Showing no pity to the sinners is still very much alive. We read that last week too. People are still dying because God is killing them, he said, because they're not partaking of the Lord's Supper worthily. He's doing that. That's no longer the law. It is the law in the church. It's the law among us. It's the law with the Bible, but it's not the common law anymore. But God said in the 15th or the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, people are still sick and still dying because they're taking the, my supper, Jesus' supper, unworthily, with sin in their life. And I'm killing them because of it. That's what he said. So in the 13th chapter of Romans, the responsibility to penalize lawbreaker was taken away from the family of the victim or ordinary citizens who happened to be witnesses and given the responsibility to the government to do that. But let me say this. The Noic 
covenant. Whoso sheds man's blood by man must his blood be shed. It's still very much alive. It was the covenant, the new covenant that God started when he had killed everybody in the world from being evil except for eight people. He said, from, we got a new start and from now on it's going to be this way. And whoever kills somebody has got to die. And like it said in Ecclesiastes, they got to die quick. We need to do it quick. These people, every time I hear that this guy was in court 20 years ago and he's been in appeal ever since, he's been in prison, we've been keeping him air-conditioned and fed and comfortable while they was deciding whether or not they were going to do away with him. And there are states that have no death penalty at all, completely disobedient to God. And they're having all kinds of problems with their criminals because of it. And now here lately it's getting worse than it ever was. God's still doing what he said to start with, folks. He really is. His intent is still the same. And you say, wait a minute. But you see, Jesus brought salvation. Did he now? Did you know you could be saved in the Old Testament? Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4 says, The just shall live by faith. This is Old Testament salvation. You know Abraham's faith was counted unto him for righteousness. You could be saved by faith in the Old Testament just like you could the New Testament. Faith is what did it. So there is salvation in the Old Testament. It didn't just come with Jesus. There were people born again, if you will, by faith in the Old Testament. And the Scripture says that. So now, to me, at least, if for nobody else, I believe that the law is still there. I believe it's still doing what God sent it to do to start with. It is still the desire of God that we keep sin out from among us. Now, what happened is that God saw, of course he knew before, that we weren't going to be able to do it. We couldn't live by the Ten Commandments. There was a man that operated a drugstore in Montevallo. A lot of you know him. And I worked with his salvation for 20 years. And he would always tell me, I know I'm going to heaven. I said, how can you know you're going to heaven, Mr. So-and-so? He said, because I follow the Ten Commandments. <laughs> but you see, he was mistaken. You can go to heaven by following the Ten Commandments but nobody can follow them. That was the problem. The Ten Commandments were here. Nobody could follow them. But by faith in God, you could be saved, even in the Old Testament. And then you had faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us for our sin. He died on the cross that, he might, that we might be forgiven. I've got written on my wall over my desk, sin cannot be undone, only forgiven. Yesterday's sin is yesterday's sin. You can't go back. You might can go back and apologize. You might go back and ask forgiveness, and you can get forgiveness for them, but you've sinned against God also. And you've got to ask God to forgive you for what you did to somebody yesterday. But it can't be undone what you've done. It can only be forgiven. Today's economy. It can only be forgiven. And that's what Jesus brought to us is forgiveness. By him we got forgiven for our old sin nature. That, that we didn't ask for. 
we came into the world with an old sin nature that came all the way down from Adam and it made sinners out of every one of us. We've still got our sin. They're not penalizing us all for every sin we've done, but we've still got them. And the only thing we can do today with them is to ask Jesus to forgive us. And if we ask him to forgive us, he will forgive us of our everyday sin. When we accept his death on the cross and his blood as payment for our sin, that took care of the old sin nature. That took care of what we inherited. But still we sin every day and God expects us to ask forgiveness for those sins as we do them so that we'll be reminded not only did we know at one time we were sinners and needed Jesus, but we'll know today that we're still sinners and we still need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for teaching us. I thank you, Lord, for understanding of what it really means. I think of what Anthony said that day in his prayer right here in this place. Lord, teach us what the words mean underneath the words. Not just the words, but what they mean underneath. That's what Jesus did today. He told us that even though we don't kill somebody, we can be in trouble and sin by just thinking, being angry at somebody. So Lord, teach us what you really meant by all of this. Forgive us as we sin today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.